January 2011. Irish newlywed Michaela McAreevy, 27, is murdered while on her honeymoon on the African island of Mauritius. The first ever murder of a tourist on Mauritius is still officially marked as unsolved, despite firm suspects being tried and let free. Did the Mauritian authorities get the right men? Or did their bungled investigation allow the real murderer to get away? Primary sources for this episode include the Irish Times, the Independent Island, the Independent, the Guardian, the Journal Island, and Donald McIntyre. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 53 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or been murdered abroad. And this particular episode is a unsolved murder of a beautiful woman in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. So I don't have any housekeeping for this week, so I'm just going to get into this case as there's so much to it and I'm sure you're going to have to take breaks to shake your head at the sheer stupidity of this investigation. I This could be my number one case so far that I think is so easily solvable and yet it's yet another example of authorities wanting to preserve tourism um, over the justice of a missing tourist in their area. And that's something that should concern us all, especially hopefully as we get into going on holidays again. Um, It's definitely something you should consider. And when it's Mauritius in particular, a place that so many millions of people go each year on holidays, and that's so stunning and you never really hear anything bad about Hopefully this episode gives you a look into the dark side of Mauritius and what can happen, um, you know, in a worst case scenario when you visit there. So before I get into this, I want to give a shout out to two particular sources. Um, the first one, surprising me, surprisingly, is Donald McIntyre. He is a Irish journalist who has a number of shows that he features on in the UK. I used to watch his show where he gets different cold case investigators to look into cold cases. And he actually did one um, on the murder of Michelle McAreevy in Mauritius. So his was really interesting to get a actual look physically at the place. Um, And I really think he's quite good. The second one is an article that was written just a number of days after Michaela's murder in Mauritius. And it's by Tony Smart for The Independent. The title is The Dark Side of a Paradise Island which could not be further from the, which could not be closer to the truth. Um, Now, Tony Smart wrote this just a few days after Michaela's murder and, you know, nine years on, he, his words couldn't be truer than what he's written. He lived there for three years. He saw Mauritius descend into a crime-ridden destination that the government is really covering up the amount of crime that's there. Um, And he really knew how this would play out. And nine years on, everything he wrote in that piece for The Independent nine years ago has come true. So I hope I don't mess up at any point. I don't think I will. I've said it enough times. Michaela's name. So Michaela's Irish and her surname is Macarivi. That's how you say it. But I have had to say this out loud about four days for about four days now. Um, I was saying it about five different ways, even though it's really just the way you say it is the most obvious way. But I was saying Macari Evie. 
<laughs> for days. So thank you to Donald McIntyre and a number of other Irish journalists who I've watched say it and said Macarevi, Macarevi a million times. So let's get into the story of Michaela Macarevi. So Michaela Macarevi, she, before she was married, she was born Michaela Hart and she was born in the Balagoli region of Ireland and she was born on the 31st of December 1983, so a New Year's present for her parents. At the time of her untimely and just cruel death, Michaela Macarevi was 27 years old. Now, just a bit about where she's from, Balagoli is in County Tyrone, which is a county of Northern Ireland. It's a part of the world that has seen its own fair share of war and ongoing conflict, and I'm sure that Michaela knew all about this, having grown up in that area. So she came from a town in Balagoli called Glencull. Now, as is common up this way, Michaela was born a Catholic, and she was raised a Catholic, and she was pretty religious. Now, a number of articles label her as what's called a quote-unquote pioneer. So I had to look up what a pioneer is, and I'll just read you the definition. Quote, the Pioneer Total Abstinence Association of the Sacred Heart, or the PTAA, is an international organisation for Roman Catholic teetotalers that is based in Ireland. Its members are commonly called pioneers. While the PTAA does not advocate prohibition, it does require of its members complete abstinence from alcoholic drink. It also encourages devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus as an aid to resisting the temptation of alcohol, unquote. So Michaela was clearly not a drinker um, and she was a pretty strict one at that. One of her roles was to run a youth group where she encouraged young pioneers not to drink. So she's a dedicated Catholic now, Michaela attended Queen's University in Belfast to become a teacher, and that is what she did. She taught Irish and religion at St. Patrick's Academy in Dungannon, and that's also where she ran that pioneer club. I always think it's funny when people in other countries teach Irish, because, you know, you teach English here, um, but I think that would be incredibly interesting. Now, one of the reasons that Michaela's murder got so much attention across the world, particularly in Ireland and the UK, is that her father is quite a famous face in Ireland. He is the football manager of Tyrone Gaelic Football Club, um, and his name is Mickey Hart. And I really think if he wasn't her father, she wouldn't have got nearly as much attention. So it really is who you know in these instances to put pressure on these authorities. As a result of her father being the football manager and being so heavily invested in football, Michaela was always at football events. There's many photos of her hugging her dad um, alongside their wins. I know very little about Gaelic football. <laughs> so in the words of um, a local football president in this area, Christy Cooney, quote, Michaela was a familiar face to so many GAA followers up and down the country, having been at her father's side through what has been the most memorable period in the history of the GAA in Tyrone, unquote. Now, just an aside to describe Michaela, I very rarely throw around the word stunning, but Michaela is absolutely stunning. Um, she had dark hair and perfect skin. Her wedding photos are heartbreaking. She was murdered just a few weeks after her marriage to the love of her life, John and her her photos are just so beautiful. Her wedding photos, she's so classy. She's got like a little kind of 
fur um, shawl over her. She's just beautiful. And I, I'm really in the Jerry Seinfeld um, school of people being attractive, um, maybe 5% of people. <laughs> so for me to say that, that's a big call. Not that it matters any more or any less because she was, I'm just saying she's absolutely beautiful. So Michaela had won the title of Ulster Rose in 2004 um, when she was 21. She was called the Rose of Tralee. So I had to look up what the Rose of Tralee Festival was as well. So, quote, the Rose of Tralee International Festival is an international event which is celebrated among Irish communities all over the world. The festival, held annually in the town of Tralee in County Kerry, takes its inspiration from a 19th century ballad of the same name about a woman called Mary who, because of her beauty, was called the Rose of Tralee, unquote. So that is why a number of um, articles refer to Michaela as a beauty queen because she was, you know, an Irish rose. Now, Michaela married the love of her life, John McAreevy, in December of 2010, really just around the time of her birthday. And they were heading off for a honeymoon um, that they hoped they would never forget that it would be absolutely beautiful. Unfortunately, John would never forget it because his newlywed bride was murdered on their honeymoon. Now, I really can't find information of how they met, but I can put the pieces together because John was a leading Gaelic footballer in this area. And because of what Michaela's father did, she was always associating with footballers and people in that kind of sports field. And that's how she met John McAreevy. So I just thought I'd add in a little bit of Michaela's actual voice. Here's Michaela talking on Ireland's Late Late Show. She was interviewed with her dad, um, a couple of years before she was killed, um, just kind of about his achievements as a football manager. So you can find this interview on YouTube. Round in the run-up to a, a final. Um, really just the same as he is all the time, to be honest. Uh, it's us, as I was saying before, that do a bit of the worrying. Um, Daddy just, instead of watching videos for five hours per day, it goes up to about 10 hours per day. And if you want to get near the living room to watch TV, it's not an option. So it's just extra focus on what's happening. You see a little page lying around with different minutes of um, bits of action that he wants Pete Quinlivan, the video analyst, to, to get sorted out for him. It's just, it's just a lot more of the same real focus and dedication. Now, of all the... You're the only girl in the family. I'm the only girl, yes. And yet you are the most obsessed <laughs> by the football, isn't that well, so? Well, you know, that's true. I'm a big supporter, obviously, of Daddy and of the team. Um, I'm certainly not what you would call a fair weather supporter in that Daddy's been managing Tyrone team since 1991, in fact, and I have not missed a single championship game. So it's quite a good record. I was about seven when he started managing the team and 17 years on, I'm 24, and I still haven't uh, missed one match. Yeah. So now you're, you're lo- So John and Michaela got married at St Malachi's Church um, near their hometowns in Ireland. It was stunning and she looked absolutely stunning. And after their wedding, um, they were due to jet down to Mauritius um, and stay at one of Mauritius's top five-star rated hotels, um, which was then called the Legends Hotel when Michaela was murdered. Now, just quickly before I get into Mauritius, when you look up the Legends Hotel, they have conveniently renamed themselves since Michaela's murder. Um, they now are called the Lux Grand Gobe 
resort and villas, um, although they have about 1,500 top reviews on Google. They refer to themselves as, quote, posh quarters in a luxe oceanfront resort with a spa and outdoor pools plus seven bars and six restaurants, unquote. Now, the Macarivis were staying there when Michaela was murdered, seemingly by a member of staff or someone who gained access to her hotel room. Now, when I said that they had distance themselves entirely by renaming themselves and rebranding themselves. They maintain that this was not to do with Michaela, that it was in the works for quite a while. Um, from what I've seen, I feel like I disagree with that. Michaela's room has now been renamed a completely different number. It was 1025. It is now 1026. And according to um, the Lux, as they're now called, they rarely use that room unless they're full to capacity. Um, now, I want to say the people who work at these hotels, they are mostly impoverished people who are cleaners, security guards, you know, generally untrained for what they're doing. Um, they've got about 430 workers, according to the Irish Independent, who went there to investigate. And most of these people do not live in these five-star surrounds like you know, the guests that they're dealing alongside. They live in small, quote, ramshackle towns and villages dotted around the northern end of Mauritius, unquote. So Mauritius. Now, I knew very little about Mauritius. I didn't know it was dangerous or that its crime rate has seriously gone up, despite what the government wants to tell you. I went to school with a girl called from Mauritius. And what I knew about Mauritius is that some of the most beautiful people in the world come from Mauritius. They're generally wrote, voted the most beautiful people in the world or up there. I knew that it was an idyllic island. I knew that they, it's not cheap, despite the fact that it belongs to Africa. Um, and it's really a five-star place where you you are expecting to dole out quite a lot of money on your holiday. So a little bit about Mauritius. So Mauritius from the outset is just what they want you to think it is. It's an idyllic island in the Indian Ocean and it is located about 2,000 kilometres, which is 1,200 miles off the southeast coast of the African continent. Now, it is made up of a main island called Mauritius and Rodriguez, which is where we are, um, but there are lesser islands. These are Agalega and St. Brandon. Now, the islands of Mauritius form part of a greater range of islands, which are called the Mascarini Islands. And also included in that is a island, which is a French overseas territory called Reunion Island. And I have a friend in France who, when they go on holidays, they always go to Reunion Island. The capital of Mauritius is Port Louis, and this is the largest city, and it also is where most of the population of Mauritius um, is located. Now, each year, about 1.4 million international tourists head to Mauritius for a stunning, you know, island getaway, and Michaela and John were two of those in 2011. Now, I'm going to read to you from Lonely Planet, um, you know, the guide that wants you to believe that every place in the world is a perfect idyllic place and crime does not exist in the world. Quote, Mark, Qua Mark Twain once wrote that Mauritius was made first and then heaven, heaven being copied after Mauritius. For the most part, it's true. Mauritius is rightly famed for its sapphire waters, powder, white beaches and luxury resorts. But there's so much more attraction to Mauritius than the beach. And it's the kind of place that rewards even the smallest attempts at exploration. There's hiking in the forested and mountainous interior and world-class diving and snorkeling offshore. 
There are boat trips to nearby perfect islets and excursions to botanical gardens and colonial plantation houses. Mauritius is a fabulous culinary destination with great wildlife watching thrown in. And the real Mauritius away from the beach resorts, a hot curry of different cultures and quiet fishing villages is never far away, unquote. Lonely Planet seems to, when they say the real Mauritius, they seem to leave out any reference to, you know, rising crime rates. But yeah. Now, Mauritius. Now, Mauritius has a population currently of about 1.3 million residents, and it spans about just over 2,000 square kilometres, which is around 788 square miles. Mauritius, as with many places, was once a UK territory, but it gained its independence in 1968. And since then, it has really followed quite a British system of parliament and government. It covers, it's modelled on the Westminster parliamentary system, which we also have in Australia, um, where, you know, you have a separation of powers from the judicial process um, and the courts and the police and the government, which is something that everyone should be familiarising themselves with right now in Australia. Now, in Mauritius, the head of state is a president and the prime minister is the head of government, which I always find really strange when countries have that system um, and they don't just have one or the other. But it probably keeps the power separated, um, which, you know, can only be a good thing. Now, Mauritius is ranked very highly for its democratic processes and for its economic and political freedom. On the Human Development Index, which I regularly refer to for my podcast, Mauritius is categorised as high, which means that people enjoy quite a good quality of life in Mauritius. Tony Smart for The Independent described how the island of Mauritius has really been ruled since its independence. Quote, in the 42 years since independence, the island has effectively been ruled by two family dynasties, the Ram Gulams and the Jagnauts. So Siwu Sauga Rangulam, known as the father of Mauritian independence, was the island's first prime minister from 1968 to 1982, and his son Naveen is the second of his two is in the second of his two terms as premier. Now, this was a few a few years ago, so they've probably moved on to a new premier since then. According to the World Bank, the country has a high income economy. Now, it is one of the most developed economies in the African region, which is quite obvious because I often don't really think of Mauritius as an African region. So life in Mauritius is pretty good for locals. If you kind of think about their welfare system, they have free universal health care. They have free education up to tertiary level and their public transportation for students, senior citizens and disabled people is free, which I think is an incredible initiative. In terms of the Global Peace Index, Mauritius is ranked as one of the most safe and peaceful countries um, in the world, which really continues, but rates of crime are rising, which I'll get into in a minute. Now, I looked at the life expectancy for Mauritians, which is something I want to integrate into more episodes, and I've never seen such a a gap between men and women. Generally, they're quite close together. I think in Australia, it's 80 and 82 women living longer. In Mauritius, the life expectancy for women is 76 and for men, it's 68. And I don't know if that's because men, you know, are 
more likely to have more physical jobs or more susceptible to things like heart disease or illness, like in most countries, or whether, you know, men and women are more likely to just kill men. I'm not sure. So in Mauritius, the languages are as follows. English is their official language, but Creole, French, and Indian languages are also languages spoken there. So I looked up how to say hello in Creole just out of interest because it is it does descend from the French language and it's bonjour, which, and in French it's bonjour, which I find really interesting. It's kind of like their own pidgin dialect of French. The major religion in Mauritius is Hinduism. That's about 52% of the population, followed by Christianity at 28% and Islam at 17%. The main industries in Mauritius are tourism, obviously, due to their, you know, rising number of international tourists visiting there and the number of four and five star resorts, the sugar industry, the tea industry, textiles, banking and business outsourcing. Now, the cuisine in Mauritius sounds pretty yum. Um, It's a mixture of Indian food, Creole food, French cooking and Chinese. Um, And a lot of their national dishes, which I post a lot of national dishes on my Instagram, um, is very unique. You can't really find it anywhere else. And it's very spicy. Just a fun fact about Mauritius, the dodo, which is an extinct bird, was the Mauritius was the home to the dodo before its extinction. And I'm going to play you a bit of Mauritius and their kind of national music that they're famous for right now. So this is called Sege and I thought I thought this was really interesting. I've never heard of it before. So Mauritian traditional music is called Sega, S-E-G-A, and they've got this kind of fusion fusion music called Sege, which is Sega meets reggae music. Now It was created in Mauritius, so it is completely unique to Mauritius, and it's incredibly popular across Mauritius and the Mascarenia Islands. I'm going to play you a little bit now. So that's very island appropriate music. You can imagine having that as a backdrop while you enjoy a daiquiri on Mauritius. That was from Mr. Sagerman974 on YouTube. So I thought that would be a bit of a kind of lubricant into crime in Mauritius, as I'm going to get into in a minute. So while the overall crime rate on Mauritius is still very low, especially in comparison to other other episodes I've done, especially ones that take place in Central and South America. Poverty is on the low side. It is ranked low, um, according to OSAC reports that I have found. The stable government situation 
is really one of the things that you can contribute to why the crime is so low. Generally, when there is a stable government for a long period of time, especially since Mauritius has their independence since 1968 and not much has changed since then, it generally does contribute to a stable crime rate. You'll find that most episodes I've covered in Central and South America do not have a stable government. There are constant coups, dictatorships, governments being overthrown, and you can compare that because they have high crime rates. Now, to talk about crime in Mauritius, I'm going to refer back to Tony Smart for The Independent and his his article that I have referred to throughout this because, as I said earlier, Tony Smart lived in Mauritius for a number of years and he had been there and then he went away and then he came back. And between those two visits in his article, he he describes how he saw Mauritius just become subject to a huge increase in violent crime. And he kind of said he was not surprised that Michaela Macarivi was murdered um, and that they were having trouble investigating it, which I'll get into shortly, because of how he saw it change. So I'm going to quote him quite extensively here because he really answers all of the questions in regards to Mauritius crime that you really can't find on their government releases. Quote, During my time on the island, I saw a steady increase of violent crime. For an island usually described as paradise, there is a lot wrong with Mauritius. Problems of alcohol, drugs and poverty have all contributed to the country's ills. Tourists visiting the island will mostly never see the real Mauritius. Many will stay in one of the island's 40 or more luxury hotels and never leave the hotel's grounds, preferring to just laze on the beach, swim in the ocean, play golf, enjoy the numerous water sports on offer or just relax in the spa. Those staying at the island's cheaper hotels are also likely, unlikely to stray far from the beach and so will never see the intense poverty that afflicts most of Mauritius. Unquote. And Honestly, the way he described that, how they'll never see it because they're never leaving the hotels, Michaela's death and her murder really changed that because she did not leave her hotel. She was murdered within her hotel. So that's a pretty good indication that crime is infiltrating those areas. He goes on, quote, within the first, our first six weeks, my girlfriend had been robbed and attacked on her way to her early morning swim in the beautiful Indian Ocean at Flick and Flack, another tourist hotspot. Why has this happened? Analysis is not easy and getting crime statistics from the Mauritian authorities was a near impossible task, particularly because they might have a negative impact on tourism, one of the island's main sources of income. But in the first 62 days of 2010, seven people were murdered on the island and one burglar was shot and killed in the act of breaking and entering. There were 10 further incidences of violent crime, including one in which some French tourists were robbed by three men armed with a revolver and machetes. Most of the island, most of the violence is by Mauritians against fellow Mauritians, but some of it is directed at tourists. Most of the violence is connected with petty crimes, but there was one rape last year, and other brutal murder, other brutal crimes have been perpetuated. Perpetrated, sorry. In September last year, seven-year-old Samuela Martin was found burnt alive in the sugarcane fields, having been raped and set alight by her uncle. The following month, the man was jailed for 26 years for his part in the rape and murder of a two-year-old girl. And in November, Serena Kalu murdered a 17-year-old boy and raped his girlfriend on a public beach, unquote. So those were just examples in a short period of time that happened right before Michaela Macarivi was murdered. Um, and now we're, you know, earlier on, I was referring to how safe it was. 
He said in the first 62 days of 2010, so just a year before Michaela was murdered, seven people were murdered on the island. Although he does point out most of it is, you know, familial crime or Mauritians against Mauritians, the way that it has gone since Michaela's murder really points to the fact that it is now being turned on tourists. Tony Smart blames a number of reasons for why this increase in crime um, has happened, and it's mostly down to alcohol and drug abuse by Mauritians that is now rife across the island. He points out that Mauritius has a serious problem with opiate addiction. They rank fifth in the world per head for opiate use, which that is from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime Report. That's not just Tony pulling out of it, it out of his ass and Crimes in relation to drugs, I don't have to explain to you, generally lead to other crimes like theft or violent crimes because they're constantly looking for that fix. Marijuana is grown extensively across Mauritius and locals generally are pretty free in smoking it across the island. He also explains how Mauritius is a destination for child sex tourism. Quote, an estimated 2,600 children are trafficked internally to fuel the trade. 4,000 cases of child abuse were reported on the island in 2010, which is an insane number considering they have just over a million population and there's over 2,500 children being trafficked across Mauritius on an island that's relatively small. The Prime Minister, who his name is Navin Chandra Ramgalam, he has also admitted that suicide is a major problem across Mauritius. So keep that in mind as we go into the details um, of Michaela Makarevi's murder. So that brings us back to after Michaela and John's beautiful wedding back in Ireland, and they set off at the end of 2010 um, for a stunning three-week honeymoon. Now, I didn't know until I watched Donald McIntyre's documentary that they actually went to Dubai first. They didn't just go to Mauritius. They went to Dubai, which we'll focus on at some point. I do have a couple of cases there that I want to cover and someone I want to interview. Um, But... They then headed to Mauritius after a beautiful nine-day stay in Dubai, and Mauritius was the main point of their honeymoon that they were really looking forward to. They were going to spend two weeks staying at the then Legends Resort, which I've talked about, just kicking back, enjoying the warm weather um, before going back to a very chilly island during winter. Now, I'm going to take you through the details of Michaela's death, how it happened, um, and before I get into the investigation and the trial. So, We're on the 10th of January, 2011, and Michaela and John McAreevy, her newlywed husband, they were on this beautiful, you know, honeymoon and nothing was up. They were having a great time. And this particular day, they had had lunch at their hotel. As I said earlier, their hotel has a huge number of restaurants there. So after lunch at just you know, after 2.30 p.m., Michaela and John ordered tea from their restaurant um, afternoon tea, very British, Irish of them. Um, And Michaela wanted to have some biscuits that they had in their hotel room with the tea. So she decided that she was going to go back to their hotel room, which was, according to Donald McIntyre, about 150 steps away. And she entered her room using using an electronic key at 2.44 p.m. on the 10th of January 2011. John had offered to go instead, but Michaela had said, nah, it's okay, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. It's literally, you know, a minute there and a minute back. Time went by and John decided that Michaela was 
you know, taking too long and wanted to see if something was up. So he returned to their room, but he couldn't get inside as his key was inside. When they'd left, only one of them took their electronic key. They had two, um, but what's the point when they're going to be together? So John actually couldn't get in. And my belief and a lot of people's belief is that Michaela was probably being murdered and her murder was trying to be covered up as he was knocking on the door, which the more you think about it, the more just fucking horrible that is. So John then returned to the hotel reception. It took five minutes for him to walk to reception. He advised them that something, you know, he couldn't get in. His wife had gone there. She wasn't answering and his key was inside. So a bellboy then returned with him to open up the room and what John discovered inside the room, you know, would change the course of his life. 30 minutes after Michaela had left the table to get biscuits and had not returned, John and the bellboy found Michaela in the room's bathroom. She was in the bath and the water was running and filling up the bath. John said that her lips were already blue. Um, He desperately tried to revive her, but she was very clearly dead on her honeymoon. He later told the court in the trial that he could see a mark on her neck. Now, authorities arrived and Michaela's death was very quickly marked as a strangulation. She had been killed, obviously, in her hotel room when she returned. Um, The person had dragged her into the bath and run the water, whether or not that's to kind of cover up evidence. I think it's kind of strange because it would start to flood out of the front door of the hotel room at some point and get attention. So I haven't ever seen anyone talk about that, but I find that interesting. Now, John was taken into custody. Obviously, when we look at cases like this, the husband is generally the murderer um, and it's right for them to assume and to take him into custody immediately. But what happened when John was in custody is so fucking horrible. Um, And I believe it. I believe everything John says. John has a podcast. It's new. I have not listened to it that has come out that covers all of it. And I will be listening to it. Um, I would love to talk to him at some point because he's still on the case nine years later. Um, when they took him into custody, they were basically jeering at him. Um, they told him that he shouldn't be sad because he can quote, get himself a new wife. Yep. Now, according to this, when they arrested him, one source, not Donald McIntyre, another article that I found said that they had actually arrested him, put him in their Jeep. And then on the way to the police station, the cops decided to stop off to get takeaway food for themselves. And they left him in the car by himself. He was then in the station for about five hours, handcuffed by himself before, thankfully, the hotel manager came there and he was able to show these police that a master electronic room key that is kept behind reception had actually been stolen before Michaela's murder. They did not know who by, but it was clear that whoever had stolen it, their record showed that they had entered Michaela's room. This is all electronic. It's all tracked. They're able to tell that. And it very clearly was not John that stole this electronic room key. So they're instantly having to release John um, and look into the fact that this is the first tourist murder that's happening in Mauritius. And because it's kept behind the hotel room reception, they instantly presume that it's someone who works there, whether it's a cleaner, a security guard or otherwise, because they knew where to go and get it um, and what they were doing it. So authorities marked after they found that she was strangled and an autopsy 
you know, showed that, um, they decided that what had happened was Michaela had entered her hotel room. She had basically walked in on someone, whether it's staff or someone else, burgling their room. Um, she had, you know, surprised them and they had felt that they had to kill her. They then put her in the bath and tried to run the water, whether that was, you know, to get rid of evidence or whatever. So they basically were able to pinpoint that two minutes before Michaela entered her hotel room, which is tracked with the electronic key card, that stolen key card was used to enter her hotel room. So very clearly someone had been most likely in her bathroom. She had walked in and they didn't have any other option to but to kill her. Um, they were probably hiding behind the door trying to figure out what they were going to do. I'm going to, I don't often do this, but I'm going to play a little portion and hope he doesn't sue me of Donald McIntyre because he explains what most likely happened when Michaela walked into her hotel room. In the following manner. A hotel insider, we think perhaps a security officer who had access to keys, entered the premises, entered this room at 2.42pm on one Monday afternoon in January. Two minutes later, Michaela entered the room. We believe that as Michaela entered the room, the thief was already in the bathroom alcove, a little mezzanine, just slightly raised above the bedroom section. We believe that as Michaela entered the room, the thief was here and considered his options. If the thief was a cleaner, he or she simply would have said, oh, I'm cleaning the room, and nothing would have been said. It's a normal hotel situation. Perhaps, though, he was in a security uniform, which the police, we understand, now believe, and he felt that his presence could not be explained away. So he hid in the bathroom, in the toilet, hoping that Michaela would go in and leave very quickly and he'd be able to escape. That didn't happen. Now, Michaela came in. She decided she would use the toilet, go into the toilet for whatever reason. The killer was startled. Michaela started to run. The thief panicked. He grabbed her from behind and held her tight until all life evaporated from her. He didn't have a weapon to hand. What was he to do? He could have run. He chose to take the most desperate of actions and kill Michaela. So after that clip, Donald McIntyre also um, puts forward his idea that the person who put her in the bath maybe put her in the bath to throw off police to think that they wouldn't know that she was strangled, that they might think that she was murdered, which it really points to the fact that this person didn't understand forensics or the fact that when you're strangled, that's clearly visible on an autopsy. He also interviews a criminologist who explains, you know, that this is clearly a man who works at the hotel, all pretty obvious stuff. And the way that he killed her from behind points to the fact that it was pretty clear from the get-go that this was not her husband, John, because this was interpersonal, that she'd walked in on something. Unfortunately, that Donald McIntyre piece was only made two years after Michaela was murdered, so it really misses out on the trial um, and any subsequent kind of developments that have happened, so I won't be referring to that um, anymore. Now, Michaela's body was returned to Ireland, and in a heartbreaking piece of her story. She was buried three weeks after she got married. She was buried at the same place that she got married. She was buried in the cemetery at St Malachi's um, Church. She, her, her funeral took place on the 17th of January 2011. Back in 
Mauritius, a serious, just ridiculous um, series of events is happening with the police and their investigation. And later on in the trial, when I go through all the things that they did, that they didn't do, that they should have done, you'll kind of realise how ridiculous it all was and how it, it was solvable and that I firmly believe that. Within days back in Mauritius, as expected from the evidence, a hotel security guard confessed um, and he confessed to Michaela's murder. He said that he and another guard at the hotel had murdered Michaela. As a result, three of the employees, including these two, were arrested. One of them for conspiracy, which I really couldn't understand why, but I think it's because he knew what had happened. They had told him later. Um, So the three that were arrested were, and forgive me for saying their names wrong, but I don't really care, um, Avinash Tribuwun, um, Sandeep Munia and Raj Thikoy. At the time, authorities said, quote, Avinash Tribuwun, Tribawoon has admitted to us that he held her legs down and he says that Sandeep Mania tried to stop Michaela from screaming by covering her mouth and then strangling her, unquote. So they, the three men were arrested and they appeared in court in Mauritius on the 12th of January 2011. Just a few days later, Michaela was being buried where she got married back in Ireland. The two main guys that were charged with the crime, they were charged with murder. And the third man, Thikoi, he was charged with conspiracy to murder. Other men were later arrested the following week. This was Dasan Narayan and Sina Ryan Mangu, and they were charged with aiding and abetting a crime. I could not find much about why, but Putting the pieces together, I assume that by aiding and abetting, they mean that they let them steal a master key. That's what I think. So don't sue me, but that's just speculation that they helped the crime happen. Now, surprise, surprise, Narayan and Mungu, the two murderers, were both security officers at the hotel. And their alibis, I don't know if they were ever able to kind of were ever able to confirm them. One of them said, I know, that he said that he told the court later in the trial that he was on the phone with his sister at the time. Um, I don't know if that was ever checked, but he said that was his alibi and why he couldn't have done it. Now, at the time when they were arrested, DNA tests were taken on the suspects as DNA had been taken from Michaela's body. From memory, they took them from her feet. Um, They took they took DNA from Michaela's feet, DNA swabs, as well as under her fingernails, which is pretty standard. These were sent to the UK for testing, which I think is really good because clearly Mauritius is not going to have world-class testing facilities. Now, when I get into the trial, I will get into kind of all of the evidence that was rebutted by the defence of these men um, and why... I don't know, why we have to kind of question the whole process from beginning to end. So now I'm going to go through the trial um, of those accused of murdering Michaela McAreevy and I'm going to present to you all of the evidence basically that the defence put forward as to why these two men were innocent. They were now claiming that they were innocent and their confessions were brought forward um, through torture at the hands of the police who investigated them. Now, I do want to say just before I get into it, what my, it's going to become pretty clear what my belief is what happened. Um, and 
whether or not these men who were later found not guilty. I firmly believe that these men killed Michaela McAreevy. Um, I have since I knew about this a number of years ago and looking into it deeply and the evidence and all that, um, there's no way I would have found them not guilty. I firmly believe that they did it. I think that the family of Michaela knows that they did it. They continue to say that. Um, they know that they're liars. And I think that for some reason they got a defence group, even though they were not wealthy. Somehow they managed to get defence lawyers that just decimated the police investigation, as well as decimating or trying to the character and reputation of Michaela and John. Um, it's sickening. So I just wanted to say that because as I go through it, it's going to become pretty clear that I think they're liars. You are entitled to believe what you want, whether you agree with the jury um, or the defence, whatever, but you have to concede that there are so many issues with what was put forward by the defence, um, as well as the police investigation. Now, the trial kicked off in May of 2012, just over a year after Michaela McAreevy was murdered in Mauritius, and it lasted two months, which is pretty, it's a pretty substantial amount of time. Now, these men, as I said, claim that they were innocent. They said that the police had tortured them, um, and they said that they had waterboarded them. They said that they were waterboarded to the point where they couldn't breathe and they were vomiting blood. None of this evidence um, was, there was no kind of pictures of them being beaten like they said they had. Um, I kind of rely on the fact that you would expect their families to take photos or their defence from the get-go um, once they acquired lawyers early on in the case. That was not the case. I feel like there would be evidence that this had happened. That is my belief. Um, he said that none of the confession was read to him, um, one of the men, and that he had signed what was put in front of him, which is pretty common story um, amongst people who say that they were wrongfully kind of accused. Now, when it was read out that the men had been waterboarded, John McAreevy in the court, um, who was back in Mauritius for the trial, this was read out on the 25th of June, he outright called out lies um, out loud to the court um, when his, the defence was basically saying these men had been waterboarded. Now, Tribune tri One, one of the accused, um, said that the police had told him that his wife, Tribune One's wife, would be deported. And believe it or not, he said that they had told him that he would, the wife would then go on to live with John McAreevy um, in Ireland if the guy did not confess. <laughs> now, I understand that you will go, well, they did say to John McAreevy that he needs to find a new wife in, you know, his questioning and all that when they initially investigated him. But I want you to keep your mind open to the fact that that information was out there when this guy suddenly started claiming that. So he's suddenly putting his argument forward that kind of matches up with things that they said to John McAreevy, information that was already out there to the public just conveniently kind of sliding in things that the police supposedly said to him um, that, you know, information was already out there that John McAreevy had said what they'd said to him when they arrested him. So this guy's just kind of fitting his own little lie, jigsaw kind of of lies into John McAreevy's story. That's, that's my personal belief. Now, a lot of people don't believe these men are guilty. Um, yeah. But he said in court that they said, quote, that man's wife is dead. He needs a woman to live with, unquote. So yeah, they all seem very hung up on not being single in Mauritius, which is 
probably an issue. It reminds me a lot of things about Jamaica where they're very obsessed with like sex and, you know, gender and not in the way that like awoke people are in the sense that they believe that women belong to men and things like that. Now, do you remember when I said that when John McAreevy couldn't get into their hotel room, he went back to the reception and got a bellboy to come with him with an electronic key card? So that guy's name was Rajiv Bujan. He could not be at the trial because the defence lawyers could not find him, right? Um, he was the bellboy or baggage handler at the hotel who went back with John to the room. He was apparently working on a cruise ship outside of Mauritius, so just nobody brought him back for the trial, which is absolutely ridiculous because it was him and John that walked in on the scene and that guy could have been, you know, a key part of the investigation. So because he's working on a cruise ship, they just don't bring him back. The jury was sworn in on May 30th, 2012, and just days after that, one of the defence counsel for the two accused quit because allegations of poor conduct was hit against him were made by a police witness. He withdrew um, despite the fact that he wasn't forced to. He said, quote, unquote, for ethical reasons. So, yeah, he said that the claims against whatever the conduct was that they haven't released were, quote, false and unfounded, unquote. The trial went on with all this information, which I'm going to get into, DNA, fingerprints, all that in a minute that the defence put forward. One of the things that was brought up time and time again that the journal in Ireland, when they broke down all the evidence in the case, had a real issue with was the police photographer. So when the police were called and, you know, the bathroom and their hotel room photos were taken of the crime scene. This police photographer had only worked in this unit for four months prior to Michaela's murder. He'd never worked on a murder case. He had only been a photographer for other kind of petty crimes. He did not capture a huge amount of relevant items that should have had photos of them captured. So <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this because it's unbelievable. The photos of the crime scene were taken on black and white film. Like we're in 19, you know, 90, not even. We're, we're in like 1950 in this, in Mauritius. We're not in 2011. The photos of the crime scenes were only taken in black and white. So they couldn't make out colours or, you know, anything. You know, black and white, when you put a, a horrible selfie of you in black and white, it makes you look okay. He said this amateur photographer said that he was not instructed to take photos of the sand outside their hotel room to check for fingerprints. So, sorry, to check for footprints. So he just did not do that, which is a given that you would do that. I think anybody with an iPhone who's half an idiot would take photos of the sand outside for footprints of people getting away. There was a belt in the hotel room that they believe could have been used to murder Michaela. Um, he did not take specific photos of that. Um, although the autopsy ruled out that she was strangled using a rope or a belt or I saw one case, one piece of documentation that said they suspected the ties on her bikini could have been used. The autopsy clearly like ruled that out, they said, but he should have taken photos of that. I think they can rule it out because you can see kind of like the exterior of the belt, um, you know, the shape of the belt on a neck as opposed to fingerprints and things like that. Now I'm going to get into DNA and what the defense said about the DNA, you know. So DNA tests were taken on the suspects when they were arrested, as I said, and they were taken off Michaela, off her feet, parts of her body um, and underneath her fingernails. After they were tested in the UK, they the DNA 
found was found not to match, not to match the person. And they've never said which of them is. So if you can find that, please let me know which of the accused, and I can't be bothered saying their names again, was supposedly the one who strangled them according to the confessions that they made early on. DNA tests did not find his DNA. To me, that doesn't indicate anything because they're saying that Michaela was basically strangled from you know, from behind. If he had her el- his elbow around her neck, I really don't think you know, that she would be able to do much um, other than put her kind of arms back and scratch if she could. Um, but I firmly believe that there was two people who killed her, like the Macarevis do, and that one of them was basically holding her back so she wasn't able to do that. But there was no DNA found of the accused. So I do concede that you're entitled to believe what you want to believe, but I've just, this is what I think. Fingerprints found at the scene of the crime did not match either of the suspects. However, when you look at how the crime scene was treated after the fact, I don't think this means a whole lot. So basically, they did some amateur bullshit where they opened the door and allowed anyone to come into the hotel room after Michaela was murdered. Even hotel guests were walking in there asking what was going on because, you know, of the ruckus that was happening with noise and everything like that. All of these people were hotel guests, hotel employees, police, all of these people. They did not keep track of one person who walked into there. So fingerprints were found on a pair of sunglasses that were found under the sink of a bathroom. So these are the fingerprints that they're comparing against the suspects. Two were found on the doors that lead to a corridor. If you want to see kind of the layout of the hotel room, watch the Donald McIntyre documentary because they basically show it and show a CGI of it. And there was a fingerprint found on a curtain dividing the bathroom um, from a bedroom. These were the fingerprints that were found that were tested and these did not match the suspects. And to me, this means absolutely nothing. I also want to put forward something that I have found that no one else has said, which I think rules out fingerprint testing. When they were showing pictures of people who worked at the hotel, they were all wearing super nice white gloves. So why would these men's fingerprints be anywhere? I'm asking that. I really want to know how they can square that with the fact that staff wear the proper old school hotel uniforms with gloves and things like that. How would they expect that? Also, any kind of burglar worth their salt would know to wear gloves. So I just can't take into consideration their fingerprint evidence that supposedly points to them being innocent. The next piece of fuckery in this case was that police did not investigate any other guests in the hotel. They did not sit them down before they went back to their relevant countries and then were not able to return to Mauritius. They did not interview any guests, anyone who was local. And Michaela and John to their hotel room had immediate neighbours. It's not that hard. They did not do any of that. I firmly believe that if this case happened in somewhere like Australia or America, it would have been solved literally within days. So not long after the trial and when Michaela was returned to Ireland um, and all of that, the police released crime scene photos to a local newspaper. Now, I just want to say that there's a case in America, which is the Colonial Parkway murders. And in this instance, one of the dodgy police officers involved 
gave crime scene photos that were completely kind of locked down, no one was allowed to look at them, to a university to use in one of their criminology classes. He was absolutely dragged through the ringer. He lost his job. He almost lost everything. But it's okay for a whole police force to release crime scene photos to a local newspaper for the accused and their families and any suspects to see exactly what was going on and exactly what the police found so that they can kind of square their story against what's already out there. It's absolutely insane. Um, Now, a statement says, quote, a belt that was later found in the room was not analysed by police. The suitcase of the victim was found outside the room. The bathtub was displaced before being analysed. Several clues and access to the room was not protected, unquote. So they actually moved the bath out of the room to investigate it. I have seen that in cases in the USA. There was a guy who was, he's in prison for drowning his wife in the bath. They actually took the whole bath um, out of the bathroom. But come on, the number of people that could have been touching that, they moved Michaela's suitcase out of the room. They didn't check basic, you know, evidence in there. And they're relying on fingerprints that could have come from literally anyone. Um, Now, another thing that came up um, was that they were looking for CCTV footage of someone who was close to the room at the time. And they found grainy CCTV footage from a CCTV camera at reception that saw a guy that the defence automatically pointed out was John McAreevy and that he wasn't where he said he was at the time and he was clearly a liar and yada, yada, yada and all this stuff. Now, it didn't take long for a German, tour- a German chef um, who was a tourist there, I believe, to be dragged into the case because he said that he was the man in the CCTV and it would have taken two seconds to be able to confirm who that was. So that part of the defence's case fell apart. Another thing that happened was that as police looked through CCTV from that day at the hotel, instead of keeping it all, according to a lot of sources, as they reviewed CCTV and found parts that weren't interesting or didn't show anything, they deleted footage. They just deleted it, you know, that's done, that's done, we've looked over that, yada, yada, yada. Now, the defence's big thing was they were pointing the finger at John McAreevy, who clearly had not done it. Evidence had shown he had not done it. He was where he said he was waiting for Michaela to return um, with, I believe, a Kit Kat to have with her cup of tea. And his story totally checked out, but they were still going hammer and tong at John McAreevy. And I get why John McAreevy is like boiling over with rage still to this day. Um, And I would be too. So, One of the pieces of evidence that the defence brought up in the trial, which was in front of Michaela's family and John's family and John, like it's truly so stupid. Like they're very conservative there. So they expect uh, like a lot of places tourists to be prudes. Um, So they brought up the fact that they had found what they called quote unquote a sex guide in the couple's room. The lawyers pointed to the fact that the manual, as they called it, could have contained quote-unquote violent material. 
So do you want to know what this quote-unquote sex guide manual was? It was the sealed section of Cosmopolitan magazine that Michaela had purchased at the airport to read on her holiday. That's right. Michaela had a Cosmopolitan magazine with a sealed section and they referred to that as possibly having violent material that could have kind of kind of encouraged John McAreevy to kill Michaela in some sort of violent sexual altercation. I mean, come on. Now, the defence also turned on the police as well as John McAreevy. They accused the police of keeping the suspect, as I said, um, for days and torturing them. And I know it's not going to surprise you that much because I've already told you, but Mauritius's Supreme Court found the two workers innocent. And when the jury came back, there was, they had two hours of deliberation for all of this evidence. That was it. It's almost like OJ Simpson, a, a trial that takes almost a year to go through and people deliberate for like an hour. Are you serious? If you're not supposed to be talking about the evidence until you deliberate once it's all been presented, you clearly have been talking about the evidence, the court, the jury or whatever, because you can't go through all of that for the first time in two hours. All of them, all of the charges were dropped and the verdicts were unanimous. Now, according to The Guardian, quote, members of the McAreevy family walked straight out of the court when the foreman of the jury made the verdicts known, unquote. So they weren't having it. Now, meanwhile, the accused's families were hooping and hollering and yelling and crying and screaming, you know, even though this is at the kind of this is because a woman is dead, this is all happening, she's been murdered and that's how they're behaving. They, The accused, they broke down in tears in the dock, relatives jumped up cheering wildly, quote, there were chaotic scenes as the two acquitted men walked out of the court. Throngs of people cheered justice, justice in Creole as policemen hurried the men through the courtyard. Moments later, defence lawyers were carried aloft. Outside court, Tribu Woon said he was overjoyed. He also expressed sympathy for the Macaridis. I'm so sorry about this lady, he said, but I did not kill this lady, unquote. Um, yeah. So it had taken 18 months from when Michaela was murdered for this trial to finish, and the family was obviously not left with the answers that they wanted. From what I can find, they firmly believed that the men had, you know, robbed the room. Michaela had walked in on them. And as Donald McIntyre kind of points out in his show, um, that they, she had been murdered whether by these men, although I believe that the entire McAreevy family believes that these men are entirely guilty, um, or whether it was other hotel staff. Now, if it was other hotel staff, I can bet my balls that those people moved on incredibly quickly from that job or even from Mauritius in general, because look at the bellboy. He just goes on a cruise ship and no one calls him back. It seems to be they don't extradite people if they've left. They just kind of let them get on with their lives. Michaela McAreevy's family up until recently, just last year, they criticised the entire process, judicial process there. They called it a quote-unquote kangaroo court um, that that acquitted the two men. And they said it was a quote-unquote big circus act, unquote. Irish authorities called the entire investigation into Michaela's death a case of quote-unquote sustained indifference. 
Now, despite the fact that the two men five years before had been found not guilty and seemingly no other suspects had been arrested in Mauritius, John McAreevy returned to Mauritius in 2017 again to put heat on the authorities to solve the case. He had flown out as they were looking at reopening the case, um, despite the fact that these two men had been acquitted. And he helped open a hotline for people in Mauritius to come forward if they had new evidence that point to who killed Michaela McAreevy. He offered a 50,000 euro reward, which is a huge amount for locals in Mauritius. We are assuming that it's a Mauritian local um, who either knows what happened or did it themselves. And as I've said a million times, in the times of COVID, I can only hope that these rewards that are put forward come to something because Mauritius is a tourist destination. That's what they make their money off. And I 100% can guarantee that whoever's responsible has seen their income decimated by this. Um, and this is a very tempting offer to, hand, to turn someone in. John has been extremely vocal since Michaela's murder in getting a new investigation and in criticising the Mauritian authorities, Mauritian Defence Force and pretty much anyone involved in investigating Michaela's murder. Liverpool Football Club created this new commercial partnership with Mauritius. Mauritius was their new official tourism and economic development partner. This was a couple of years ago now. And John McAreevy was enraged at this. And I understand that because I would be too. Um, It's a football club that is kind of linked to Gaelic football in Northern Ireland. And they're choosing Mauritius, which is the country that seemingly can't do an investigation into a British you know, or Irish nationals murder. Liverpool chose Mauritius as their, you know, business partner. And John McAreevy went on Twitter and he posted, quote, Mauritius can't guarantee tourist safety and have complete disregard for victims of murder, unquote. And he tagged Liverpool Football Club on Twitter. Now, surprise, surprise, a week after this tweet, despite the fact that the initial suspects were cleared and the case was, for all intents and purposes, cold, Michaela's murder investigation was reopened and John very much believes that this was due to the fact that he tweeted, you know, very publicly about Liverpool Football Club on Twitter and about their ties with Mauritius. And this is a big economic deal for Mauritius. So they want to be seen to be doing all that they can to keep this deal with Liverpool Football Club alive and well. So that was in 2020, this year, that it has been reopened. But I presume that COVID has kind of squashed anything currently happening um, in terms of Michaela's murder investigation. The Irish Times, quote, he has accused Mauritian authorities of indifference and inaction on the case, claiming they are more interested in preserving the island's reputation as a tourist destination than catching the killers, unquote, which pretty much sums up my entire podcast from John McAreevy. Now, John McAreevy does have a podcast um, and I have not listened to it yet. As I said, it's quite long. I intend on doing that um, because I want to hear it from the horse's mouth, all of this information. And John, if you happen to hear this and you'd like to come on the podcast to discuss Michaela's murder investigation, my entire podcast is based on almost entirely on police and governments that don't do their part for tourists in different countries. Almost every investigation I've covered, I think, bar two, show complete corruption in a lot of these places. Um, And the fact that, as John said, they 
just want to preserve the island's reputation in Mauritius and most countries that are tourist destinations want to do that over catching killers. Um, Jamaica and Mauritius, in terms of investigating murders, I would put them almost on the same kind of level. Now, if you want a little bit of good news. So John started the Michaela Foundation um, after Michaela's murder. And according to MichaelaFoundation.com, quote, Michaela Foundation provides values that encourage young people to succeed in life, fulfillment and happiness with faith, confidence and fun as a foundation, unquote. John continues to um, try to get answers as to what happened to his wife, um, Michaela, in Mauritius, and he continues to be vocal. His podcast is called Murder in Mauritius, and it came out last year um, in 2019. Now, if you want a little bit of a silver lining, a little bit of positive news after all of this, um, John met a beautiful woman called Tara Brennan. He met her in Galway in 2012, a year after, a bit after a year after Michaela was murdered. He had been doing a lot of fundraising and kind of charity work in relation to getting pressure on the case Um against, you know, Mauritius and about Michaela's murder. And he had gone to Galway for a little break, he said. He said that he met this woman, Tara Brennan, um, and he instantly felt a spark and he said it helped him find the beauty of life again. He said, quote, there is no guide to go by because nobody knows what it's like, but our guiding thing was our love and that is what prevailed. He told he basically says in interviews that um, he knows that he has a lot of baggage, um, but Tara is just incredibly special. And John and Tara got married in two thousand and sixteen. I know for some people that's going to be tough a tough pill to swallow, but initially for me, cases like this it is. But seeing what he's gone through and seeing what they've put him through, he deserves happiness, and no one can judge him for that. And Tara looks like a beautiful. She, she just radiates beauty. And I know I didn't know them and I know I can't really say this, but I'm positive that Michaela would have loved Tara. Um, you can just tell from photos of her that she is a good person. Now, the couple work in charity events together. They run fundraisers for local, you know, charities in Ireland. They um, take part in charity events for suicide crisis centres in Ireland, Team Hope in Ireland. And Tara also works alongside John at the Michaela Foundation, which I think is incredible. And this year in September, John and Tara announced that they are expecting a baby in the new year. So congratulations to John and Tara. Despite this, he says that his quest for justice for Michaela will not stop until the people who murdered her have been jailed. He is still working alongside Michaela McAreevy's family, um, to get justice for Michaela. And he said when he met Tara that before that, when Michaela had died, Michaela's parents, who are seemingly incredible people, had said to him that they hope that he meets someone again who can make him happy. And he found that really tough to swallow when they said that to him because when it happens, you can't imagine ever meeting anyone again. When you have a bad breakup, you can't imagine that ever happening again. So how could you possibly imagine that when the love of your life is murdered? Um, But John's story should give people hope, you know. 
He told News Talk FM um, that, quote, our approach was there is no point shouting and roaring here and getting our backs up. We needed these guys on side and we felt that we should support them and give them an opportunity to right the wrongs that happened in 2012. And he said that about the Mauritian authorities. It's a good approach. He's not going to put them offside by screaming at them, um, which is probably the knee-jerk reaction, what you want to do. Um, he has pretty much been very civil with them despite all of this. And as a result, recently her case has been reopened. So I will keep you posted on that. Um, if you put anything on Instagram or Twitter, or anything like that about Michaela, um, please hashtag justice for Michaela. That is what um, John McAreevy uses. So I'm going to wrap this up with a quote from Tony Smart from his very great article that he wrote in um, 2011 for The Independent about, and I don't really know any other way to wrap it up, quote, I finally left Mauritius last June, tired of the rising violence and daily corruption and the stress of driving around the island. Last year, there were 20,000 road accidents, which left 151 people dead. And with the murder of Michaela Makarevi, a little more of the dark side of Mauritius has been revealed, unquote. So I'm going to wrap it up with that. Um, you can follow John Makarevi on Instagram. I won't tag him in these. I don't want to make his life worse or anything like that. It's up to him if he hears this episode or not. Um, but you can follow the Michaela Foundation and John McAreevy's Quest for Justice um, on all social medias. I will put Michaela's episode page up in the next day or so um, on unknownpassagepodcast.com. I have also kind of moved things around on there and have uploaded a lot more of my Instagram travel facts. I understand a lot of you don't have Instagram, so I put them up there. Um, they're under the travel facts tab. Become a patron at Unknown Passage Podcast on Patreon. Just do me a search on the Patreon channel. There's a $2 a month tier and a $5 a month tier and it goes to website costs um, for this podcast and any other kind of stuff I need to fork out for, for it. Um, the only Instagram, the only social media I have is Instagram. So follow me at Unknown Passage Pod on Instagram and join the community there. I love our little community there. And if you can't do anything else, go on your podcast platform of choice and leave a rating, a re rating or review. Sorted out, Felicity, <laughs> for Unknown Passage Podcast. Um, that would mean the world to me. So next week, um, the next episode, which will probably be out at the end of this week, probably in the next five or six days, I am going to cover a case that I've wanted to do since I started this. I've kept kind of putting it off. Um, it's incredibly interesting and I'm going to leave it at that other than to say it will be Patreon Lainey's episode for her location request. So stay tuned for that. Um, please read up on the Michaela Foundation and what you can do to support Michaela McAreevy's family and John and yeah, I'll see you next episode.